Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Back to our first love. Make it so real to us, God, that when we first entered into the kingdom, how we wanted to learn more and read more and talk to you every day and walk with you side by side throughout the day. Bring us back to that place again. And for those, God, today that are just beginning their walk with you, if they're here today, they're interested in God. If that is the case, God, I pray that they today would start a walk with you that you, they are here because you are pursuing them. You are pursuing them. And so because we've come here to hear you, don't let men get in the way. Don't allow my voice to be a miniature replica of your voice. God, you speak. Let the Holy Spirit speak during this time. God, we pray that you would just pour yourself out in such a way that we know that you have spoken. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, please have a seat. Thank you so much for coming out here today if this is your first time coming. It's always exciting here. We're getting ready to wind the summer down and uh, we'll start back uh, again with school and things of that nature. And we've got this series coming up because I really think one of the most important things for you to understand is what God is calling you to do in your life. When we looked in Jonah, we saw that in the first chapter, we saw that God had a calling for Jonah's life. In fact, when we use the word calling, really what we're saying is an assignment, that God has an assignment for Jonah's life. And we would say the same thing for you, that you have an assignment on your life, that God has a, a very particular calling that he has for you. But we know that even though you have a unique assignment for your life, there is a general assignment for all of God's people, and that is we are called to bring glory to him in dark places. Wherever there are people who are running away from God, who have a disfigured look of what God, who he really is, we are there to bring light to who God is. And so Jonah, Jonah is put in this position. God tells Jonah, go to the Ninevites and talk to the Ninevites, and tell them of my glory. But Jonah decides to go the opposite direction. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to a place called Tarshish, or he's at least attempting to. Tarshish was 2,500 miles away. You couldn't get any further away from Nineveh than going to Tarshish. But as we look in chapter 2, we're going to see Jonah's problem. And the problem that Jonah had is a problem that we have and is a problem that works, actually works well in society. It helps you to function in society. I was, uh, you know, I was a very bad baseball player. I talked about my football prowess last week. I was a very bad baseball player in part because I was scared of the ball. So I never wanted to get hit. And so I would strike out constantly. But I was watching the other day was watching a uh, game, and I, you know, I kind of noticed how dramatic the umpires are. Have you ever watched that, like how dramatic they are? In fact, if you, if you, did you see the Olympics? There was a part, my wife and I, we were watching, and um, this dude from like Puerto Rico, he was like in the four by one, and he went too soon. 
And he got disqualified, but he didn't know. And so the people, the umpires walked over, and they were like, hey, you know, it's over. Yeah, all four years that you trained, yeah, it's over, yeah. And, you know, the dude just has this moment, and he walks him over to the sideline, and it was like, yeah, it's over. And he cries, you know, and the guy tells you cry over here and, you know, all your dreams are over. And then, and then they start the whole tracks thing back again, right? It was so gentle and so kind, you know. And I thought about in baseball, you know. I mean, they, 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 you know, they give you that one strike and then the second strike. And then when they do the third strike, why can't it be, hey, man, you're out. It's over. It's over. I know you wanted to hit the ball, but you're not going to do that today. They're all dramatic about it, like, you know, they're putting their fist out and all that. But it's not just in, football, uh, in baseball, it's in football, too. You know, I play football, and, you know, the, the referees, you know, you see them, and they literally are trying to throw the flag at the player that did it. No, that's actually what they're doing. You know, they're trying to, so they can highlight the fact that that's the person that did it. So they throw the flag at them. Then the brother gets a microphone on, looks at your number, says, number 66, with the hold, and everybody's like, oh, and every time they're like, nah, it wasn't me. I don't know how that happened. You notice that? Every time, it's just like it was somebody else. It was never them. So then, but then in basketball, you know, the worst thing in basketball, they have the charge. Have you ever seen the charge where, you know, the, the guy is coming at them, and he falls back, and the charge, you know, a charge means that I'm going to get a foul on him by standing here, and then sometimes they fall down, and the ref comes over. It was on him. They're like, ah, and they point to him. It's like, this is your fault. You didn't do it right. Number 66 sucks. You know, and it's just like horrible. It's like, why is it so dramatic? Josh is a ref. He's like, you know, like, Josh knows he's doing it. But, you know, this is, this is what they do. This is what they do. So what they do is referees and umpires, they do a great job of calling people out when they fail. But you know who does a better job of that? The church. Huh? Huh? You know who does a better job of helping people to see when they've broken the rules? The church. They do an incredible job of creating an atmosphere where there are people who are out and there are people who are in. See? And Jonah's problem was Jonah figured that the Ninevites, you know, the Ninevites killed people. The Ninevites, oh, they were so sinful. The Ninevites would go through city to city killing all types of people, raping and pillaging. And when God told him, go to the Ninevites, he said, I don't know if you know this, but they've broken too many rules. They're out. I'm in. The calling for the church is to declare his glory in a dark city. And if we were to ever get to the place of presuming that there are people who are in and people who are out based upon performance, we're telling the wrong story. Jonah chapter 1 is in a boat the boat begins to collapse. He knows it's his fault. He tells the sailors, throw me in the water. They throw him in the water. The storm ends. Jonah sinks down, down, down into the water. Finally, a fish comes, swallows Jonah up. And in this fish, 
Jonah prays a prayer, and in that prayer, Jonah comes to a realization that in that moment, he is is in much need of grace as the Ninevites. And God gives him a wake-up call. (laughs) You know, God will do that in your life when you ever start believing you have a higher righteousness than other people. He will begin to expose your failures, and you can either try to conceal them or you can confess them. But either way, you'll know. God's not trying to keep your sin a secret from you. Yeah, he'll let you know. Praise God. That's a whole nother sermon. Far be it from us to be those kind of people. So God gives Jonah a wake-up call. So in Jonah chapter 2, I believe it's verse 8, In this prayer, Jonah prays, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Steadfast love. You know, there's a verse in Isaiah that says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. It says that God's ways are not our ways. You know what they're saying? God's love is not the kind of love we're used to. It's a steadfast love. The word steadfast is an interesting word. It, it, it has this unique element there of talking about pledging your love to someone. Uh, the, the word, it feels of this loyal love. It's called hesed love. And it means that I am pledging myself to you. I'm binding myself to give you favor no matter what. I have a hesed love for you. And what he comes to the realization is those Ninevites, they're missing out on the Hesed love of God. And Hesed love, Hesed love is a synonym of grace. It's understanding the grace of God. And so I pray that when you walk out of here, I pray you know how much you are loved by God. I pray you know how much the grace of God is available to you. It is so sad. I could sit with some of you and talk about sin. I mean, all the sin of the world. I mean, all the brokenness of the world. I mean, all the tragedy happening. I mean, all the things happening in your own life. Oftentimes, because I'm a pastor, people tell me all types of things that have either happened to them or things that they have done, and they'll tell me about sin, and they're experts on that. But when I start talking about grace, far too often we... We are novices. We are naive to grace, but we're experts about sin. (laughs) You know, if you ever watch HGTV, my wife loves that stuff. I don't. So that's when I put my interest, her interest above my own. (laughs) We watch it, you know, and sometimes, and I don't know why we do this because it only breeds covetousness. It only, in New York City, when you live in two square feet, and there's like all these, and they're like, let's get a house in Kokomo, yeah. And I'm like, why are we watching this? Why? We, why? <laughs> but she likes it, and I love her. So we watch, and it's every time. It's like somebody like, would you like to buy this house? It's like $7 billion, yeah, come on in. And they're walking in, and they're walking in, and like, this is the foyer. The foyer's amazing, isn't it? Like, and every time they're like, oh, wow, the foyer, whoa, whoa. Well, they're like, but that's not it. And then they walk upstairs. 
and they go to this room, and they're like, isn't this amazing? Like, they're like, oh, baby, this is my dream. They're like, but that's not it. And they walk to another place, and they're like, you've seen the garage? The garage is amazing. And then they go down to the garage, and it's, it's like made for all these cars, and they go downstairs to the man cave, and man cave is amazing. Then there's a pool room, and then there's an actual pool, and then there's a backyard. And they keep going, and every time they're just like, man, this is amazing. Every time I keep going, there's more and more and more. And it makes you feel like you could spend all your time discovering all these different rooms in this incredible house. And what's so crazy is that God's grace, his hesed love, it is like this incredible mansion where there's more and more and more. But far too often we're in the foyer. And that's all we know. That's all we know. And God, he wants to host us. He wants to host us. He's a good host. He's very hospitable. He's a great host. And he wants to host us in his house of grace. And show us around. And have him, have us experience him in all the dynamic ways he can be experienced. All these synonyms of grace, you see in Genesis chapter 33, verse 15, Jacob and Esau have this huge conflict since they were young. Jacob essentially deceived and stole from Esau a birthright and basically an inheritance. And in stealing that, it created tension in their relationship and eventually in their families. And this tension gets built up. But then one day, Jacob sees Esau. And in seeing Esau, he says to him, let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. When he says my Lord, he's just talking about him was the way they use the terminology then. But what he's basically saying is, let me find favor in your sight. Let me be acceptable in your sight. And so when the Bible in the Hebrew in Old Testament, when it's talking about favor, it's not just saying do me a favor. <laughs> it's not just saying do something for me. It is essentially letting me into a place I could never get to my own by a person that is not obligated to give me that entryway. In fact, that person, not only are they not obligated, they actually have a good deal of reason to be offended by you and not let you in at all. And so Esau, with all this tension, is being asked to have a relationship with Jacob. It is this idea of being let in, this hospitality of relationship. You know, this week we start city groups, amen? Bow, 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 bow. If you haven't had a chance to join a city group, I tell you, what we do here is great, but city groups is really where it's at. <clears throat> That's where our community gets built. That's where we have life on life. That's where we're in the word and we're challenging each other and loving each other. That is where it's at. Your Christian life will have exponential growth when you get more people in your life that are trying to grow. It's not a deep concept, right? So... City groups, I, I came here from the South. I'm from New York, but I was in the South for 19 years. So ministry, I learned ministry in the South. And in the South, you always open up your house. It's just what you do. You know, and if people can be knocking on the door, and be like, you want some tea? You want some tea? Have some tea. Have some tea is over here. And you just open up your house. 
And in New York, it's not that way. It's not that way at all. So we, you know, we used to, the way we started the church, we had a Bible study, and we started the Bible study, and I was like, hey, guys, again, I'm coming with a southern mentality. I'm like, hey, guys, you know, it's been great doing this at the church, you know what I'm saying? But it's time to go into, you know, y'all's house. And I had no clue what I was saying. One woman left the church, and we didn't even want it in her house. It was just the concept. She was, she was Caribbean, praise God. No shade on Caribbean. But she was like, my house? I was like, yeah. She was like, no. And just left. I was like, dang. Just because we letting you in don't mean we got, okay. Hospitality. But you know what? Maybe she was more honest in a way because True, what a, you know, really being hospitable isn't just about letting you in the home. It's really letting you into your life, right? It's more, it's, it, hospitality is bigger than just space. It's about making room for you in my life. And maybe she was a little bit more honest, saying I'm not there yet to really go there with you, to get to know people on that level, when someone walks into a home and you're being hospitable, when they say, even when they sit down, one of the first things you ask is, are you thirsty? You, you, you try to adjust the temperature to meet them where they're at. You begin to see how their day was. You begin to start a conversation with them. True hospitality is meeting them where they are so that they would feel comfortable in your presence. That's good preaching. Y'all don't see it yet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> One of the things God has done is he has created room for us. He has let us in. But he didn't just leave us at the foyer. He let us all the way in. He let us at the dinner table. He wants to commune with us. He wants to know how are you doing. He wants to be connected to you. He wants to know you more. He wants depth and relationship. And he is willing to accommodate you just to be with you. And this is the picture of the cross because he wanted to be with us. And this is why they call Jesus Emmanuel because it's God with us, with us being with us. God is accommodating himself to be with us. God is constantly saying, I want you. I want to be with you. And so this, this incredible picture of love in Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, it, it reads this way. <clears throat> He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pits. Oh, Lord, my God. If you feel the tension, now, it, there's imagery happening here. It's, this is 
This is a prayer. It's also poetry. And so he's showing the idea that he literally went down into water and then a fish comes and gets him. But he's also using this as imagery of what was happening in his life. I was running from you, God. You told me what to do. And I did the very opposite thing. You told me to go here. I went there. And so what happens is he's using the imagery of the water and the weeds, and he talks about the roots of the mountain. You can't get deeper than roots of mountains, right? I went all the way to the bottom. I went down to the land who has bars or clothes, meaning I'm closed in. There's nothing I can do on my own. And he says, you brought me up. You brought my life there is a clear sense from Jonah that he knows, he, he becomes aware. Jonah, who was a preacher, and Jonah, who was a prophet, he was not aware. There was some level of self-righteousness in Jonah. There was something about him that saw the Ninevites, bad, me, good. In this moment, he says, you know what? I'm at the bottom now. And now that I'm at the bottom, I see you're the one that brings people up. I see you're the one that's due credit. I see I'm not the one that can do anything. I can do nothing. You do everything. I don't have righteousness. You have righteousness. And it is our understanding of mercy and grace. (laughs) When I did college ministry, I would always explain mercy and grace this way. This is a true story. Um, I was in seminary. I walked into the class, and um, I was pastoring a church at the time, and the nature of pastoring, you get busy, and pastoring and being in class is always a very big challenge, and so I wasn't paying attention to my syllabus, and uh, in so doing, I walked into the class, and that dreaded moment came when the teacher says, okay, guys, let's go put away all your stuff, let's get ready for that test. Let's get ready for that. Let's get ready for that midterm. Midterm today. Yeah. And I was like, oh, today. Oh, okay, so I had to play it off. And I was like, here comes that zero. That zero. That zero about to go down right now. So I'm there, you know, and you know, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, dang, I gotta start reading my syllabi, dog. You know, I feel horrible. And the teacher, in the middle of it, he goes, I mean, literally, we were, we were there. He ha- this is the best part. He hands out the paper. And then, not only did I feel bad, I saw the paper, and I felt worse because I knew I knew nothing on there, right? So here I am. There's nothing I can do. I am about to fail on my own. And the teacher, by God's loving hand, stops and says, you know what, guys? It's warm outside. Why don't we postpone the test till later? And I was like, thank you, God. You're so merciful. You didn't give me what I deserved. I deserved an F. But see, that's not grace. So when he looks at us and he goes, he literally, he's like, give me your papers. He gets the papers. And he's putting him in his bag, and he goes, you know what? Y'all ain't going to study over the break. How about this? How about I give all y'all 100? Hallelujah! I was like, what? He was like, yeah, y'all all get 100. 
yeah, yeah, just go home. Just go home. Just go home with a break. Have a hundred. Everybody's like, oh, thank you. I'm sitting there having a moment with my Lord. <laughs> because not only did I not get what I deserve, I got so much more. I got 100% when I deserve 0%. You see, and the righteousness of God gives you, you are now, you've been imputed a righteousness you do not deserve, but you deserve a zero. And you deserve a failure, but the teacher, God, our Father, has given you a resume and a righteousness that should put you in a position to say, how did I get here? I don't deserve. You brought my life up. It's all you. Salvation comes from the Lord. What gratitude you would have. And when you know that you deserve the worst, but you got the best, there's something in you that is propelled towards compassion. Because you, you saw that test. You knew you had no answer. And when it comes to righteousness, we have insufficient funds. We have nothing to offer. And yet God gives us his righteousness. That's grace. He comes to this conclusion. You brought me up. You brought my life from the pit. Now, the reason why it is difficult for us as a church, I'm not talking about church out there. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about y'all. I'm talking about me and you. The reason why this is tough for us to share is because we just have a tough time living in that zero, 100% tension. We just don't know how to live in it and operate it. It almost feels so inconsistent. Look in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, verse 4. He said in the middle of this prayer, he said, Then I said, I... I'm driven away from your sight. Now, he actually wasn't driven away. He was running away. But he, there's something about guilt and shame that makes you, it almost feels right to run away from God. He says, I'm driven away from your sight. But then he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The imagery there is going to the very dwelling place of God, and in the temple there was a place that only the priests could go that was the holy of holies. That's where the sacrifices were made. This is the very place where many could not go, but he's saying, I'm going to look in to the holy temple. He says, I realize on one end everything I have done. I ran away from you. But even still, I will look again. The grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is caught right there, right there, highlighted in blue in Jonah chapter 2, verse 4. The grace of God is caught in the words, yet I shall again look. Yet I shall again look. Yet I shall again look. I will not base my relationship on you, on the fact that I've been running away, yet I will look again. And if you want a life that is overflowing with Jesus, you need to add some yet I shall look again. That's what you need to add to it. 
You need to add that to your prayer life, yes. Because when you feel guilt, shame, confusion, all that, in spite of how you feel, you still look again, and it is like riding a rocket ship that is defying the gravity of guilt, and you start to get closer and closer and closer to him. Grace doesn't give you an excuse. It gives you the power to come again, to look again. Yet I shall look again, and I am a mess. Oh, Lord, I'm a mess. I have, God has every right to be tired of me. God has every right to say I've broken too many rules. And the tension, the tension of that verse, the tension of that verse is the accuser and your flesh are always saying, you're out. <laughs> the accuser and your flesh are always saying, see her right there, mm-hmm, right, yes, you right there, mm-hmm, you're the one that did it, and let's everybody look at them, feel bad, feel guilt, feel shame, you're not worthy anymore. And in some ways, something inside you always tells you you're not worthy for the love of God. You've been disqualified, you're out, let me walk you to the side. And it is raging inside of you. It is a part of every part of our world. But his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You ever thought he doesn't think like you? <laughs> if I was him, you're not him. Bam. <laughs> you, just, you just say that to yourself every day. Go to that next slide. Say this with me. Say, I'm going to say it. You say it after me, all right? I am a mess, and yet he still wants me. Now say it like you just, like, you really feel like a mess. Say it with me. I am a mess, and yet he still wants me. Let me tell you, the first part of that, you've got to come to that conclusion. You are a mess. And I know you look cute. You look cute today. Put your, you put your clothes on. You look nice. But there's something about you I know. You a mess. And God still wants you. He's, he does not grow tired of you when you grow tired of yourself. He still wants you. He still wants you. The grace of God is confusing because he still wants you. He is not like your father. He is not like man. He is not a ref. He is not an umpire. It is the righteousness of God given to you, not based upon you. That is the beginning of your relationship, and that continues on. Grace saves you. It sanctifies you as well. Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, we see it. He says, I'm a mess. God. But I want to look back at 2, verse 8. 
Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, let me read that to you again. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And there you see something in, in Jonah that he comes to a conclusion, and we touched on this before, but it's worth noting again. He's saying those who pay regard to, to vain idols. I feel like before he would have said, get what they deserve, right? Those who pay regard to vain idols, get what they deserve. Those Ninevites, you know what they deserve? They don't deserve you. I'll tell you that, God, they don't deserve you. I deserve you. They don't deserve you. See, so those who pay regard to vain idols, meaning those who are worshiping things outside of you, they don't deserve you. But what he ends up saying is they forsake the, their hope of steadfast love, meaning there's something more. There is a love that they're missing out on. And what you see from Jonah is the beginning of a heart of compassion because he now realizes that he has received grace and now he wants to extend grace to others. That is how it works. When you believe you've been forgiven much, you forgive much. When you believe you've received much grace, you extend grace. When you believe that God loves you deeply, you tend to love people deeply. And it flows from our vertical relationship with God to our horizontal relationship with man. And you see that, that Jonah comes to this conclusion. One of the greatest things that you can do in your life with God right now is always remember that if it had not been for the grace of God, where would you be, right? You're no different than anyone else. You're no different. Who is the most vile? Who is the worst person? Who's the person they talk about on the job? Who's the person that they outcast in your neighborhood? Who's the person that no one can stand? Who's the person in your family that everyone says they can't believe they can't get themselves together? Who is that person? If it had not been for the grace of God, you're no different. One of the healthiest ways to remind yourself of the gospel is not see yourself too far from the worst sinner in the room. But to know the only difference between them and you is the grace of God. And you say, well, how, what is the evidence of this? How can you see the evidence of this? The evidence of a heart that has been captured by grace is the ability to confess. Oh, yes. Because I'm not saying every dirty, every dark secret. I'm saying your ability to be in a community of brokenness, not as a person teaching us how to have it together, but a person saying, God is walking with me through my brokenness just like you. And when a person shares in Citigroup, you sit there not thinking, man, I can't wait to teach them. But you say, I, I don't know what that's like, but I know what it's like. As they share something crazy, like, I don't know what that's like, but, but I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be broken. I know what it's like. And our city groups tend to be this place where people cannot believe 
that God is so good, not just because of the teaching and the worship, but because they're around people that they've always wanted and they could only find them at the bar. You know, you would probably be better off confessing to a drunk man or a crackhead than a Christian oftentimes because at least they'll say, nobody's perfect. And so we don't realize that the grace of God not only compels you to confess, but it drives you to obedience. Because if you know what God has done for you, you don't, you don't jump back into it, at least not willingly. There are habits, there are addictions, there are things you wish you did not do. But it breaks your heart because you know God brought your life up from the pit. You know when you sin that you are clinging and paying regard to a vain idol, and you know you are forsaking steadfast love. When that old boyfriend, old girlfriend calls you back, when you click and drag and look at things that are making you feel guilty while you do it, when you said that thing, you don't know why you said it, but you continue to say those things again. When you do those things and you do them, the guilt that you feel comes from a place of knowing that you have forsaken steadfast love. But this is the crazy thing. In the moment you feel you've forsaken that love, you can still say, yet I shall look again. And you come back to him in spite of the way that you feel because your feelings are not factual. Oh, his word, that is the basis of our relationship. Oh, the Lord, the Lord in Jonah chapter 2, it compels you towards compassion. It compels you to understand grace. You know, we said that we were a mess, right? And he still wants us. You know, something healthy, uh, sometimes when the saints get together, it's kind of like, uh, remember Kool-Aid? Y'all remember Kool-Aid? Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid, right? Yeah, it's Kool-Aid. Sometimes the sugar goes to the bottom, and you just need to stir it up a little bit. <laughs> just to get the taste back, you need to stir it up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Stir it up. Sometimes when the saints get together, we kind of deal with people like we're the world, and sometimes we just need one or two people to just stir up, kind of stir up the grace a little bit. So, you know, when that girl says something stupid or that guy does something crazy, yeah, you're right. They're a mess. They are a mess. Oh, my God, they're a mess. But God still wants them. God still wants them. And we got to stir that up because we lose our flavor when we sound as judgmental as the world. It's a crazy thing to be saved by grace but deal with each other through law. But it's beautiful when it's okay. I mean, you know, that's one of the things we've said. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not, not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's okay to say they are a mess. She is a mess. He's a mess. I don't know why. He's just a mess. God still wants them, though. God still wants them. And God has placed me in their life to show his pursuit of them. His grace is chasing them down through me. <laughs> God did not send me to observe their sin and track it. God sent me 
to see their sin and love them in spite of it. That is why you exist. God, you know, in a second, this air that you hear is going to shut off. It's going to get real silent. The people of the church, they turn it off and turn it on at their will. I don't even know when it happens. I tried. tried to organize. Like, yo, do only two. You got four o'clock. Just stop. But, you know, just can we organize a time when to turn it on because it's so loud? Never worked. And you know what? I don't know when it comes on and off. It just shuts on, shuts off. And it is no different than the lungs in, the breath in your lungs. You will decease. You have a deadline. And the purpose of your existence is not to be great at some vocation. The purpose of your existence is to extend grace to people. And if you do not know when your breath will shut off, start tomorrow. Start today. Start right now. Start. Start. (laughs) How do you know... How do you know the grace of God is in your life? You, you have compassion towards others and you're extending it towards others, but there's something else you do. Something else that we're growing in as a church and something else that it's hard to push people towards. Look, look what he says in, in verse nine. He says, well, let me just read again. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But he says in verse nine, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. Why didn't he just say thanksgiving? Why did he say, why, you know, I will give you thanks. Why did he say voice of thanksgiving? Maybe he was getting at the fact that while he was in the very base of his life, And his life was not working out. And he had run from God. I think what he realized was when you perceive and understand the grace of God, gratitude flows from you. Thanksgiving flows from you. Because you know you don't have to live in guilt. You know you don't have to live in shame. You know that you don't have to perform anymore. You know that he has let you in. You know that you have been adopted. You know that you are family. And out of that confidence, there is a particular voice of thanksgiving. There is a particular kind of praise. Now, every church tries to create an atmosphere of praise. But it cannot be created from people up front. It cannot be created from the pastor, and it cannot be created from a particular type of song. The voice of praise comes from a heart that understands grace. And as you understand grace, I believe Jonah was getting at a point. It's your voice. I can't sound like you. I can't worship like you. I can't give God appreciation like you do. But he has actually given you a voice of praise. And he has given you a voice of appreciation for his grace. And so maybe what I can encourage you in this is that don't let your voice 
try to be like anyone else's voice, but let your voice cry out to God in your own way because you know what your life was looking like. You know that you were 0%. But do you know he gave you 100%? Do you know he gave you your righteousness? That with your voice, you give him thanksgiving. You and your voice. The worship group Bethel has a song that, uh, you ever hear a song and you hear the words, then one day you like really hear the words? You know what I'm talking about? I was on a treadmill one day, I was running, and I, I, started, I almost fell off the treadmill because I got into it. I was like, oh, you're pretty, oh, thank you. And I just stayed right there so nobody would make me look crazy. But this song, this song, I was the other week, it caught me what they're saying. And it connected so well to what we've been saying. If you go to the next slide, it, it, it runs like this. They said, your love is devoted. Now, that's the essence of what they're getting at in this stanza. And they say, your love is devoted. It's like a, it's like a ring that you've married me, like a ring of solid gold, of great value and worth. She says, like a vow that's been tested meaning I have broken it over and over, but I've tested the vows and you're still there. Like a covenant of old in the covenants, they would say, take me out if I don't fulfill this covenant. And God sent his son to die for us because we continually break it. We continually break our relationship. And yet God sends his son and he takes on our penalty. And she says, your love is enduring through the winter rain, the worst time of the year. And beyond the horizon, there's mercy for today. There's more mercy tomorrow. My failure today will not dictate your love for me tomorrow. You have so much love for me tomorrow. You have so much love for me tomorrow goes on, she says, faithful you've been. And this is what's crazy, not based on me. Faithful you will be. You're always going to be faithful to me. When I am faithless, you will always be faithful to me. And I just, when I got caught up on that treadmill, it's when I heard this one part. You pledge yourself to me. Do you remember that? Do you remember that in school when you took a pledge? You know, the idea of saying, I'll never leave. I'll never forsake. You pledge yourself to me, and, and in the end, she says, and that's why I sing. Your praise will always be on my lips. Always. Because your grace has covered me. And today, I want to invite you to walk around in his mansion of grace. I want you to get out the foyer, and because that area that you're in is based upon how much you think God's love is limited. 
And I want you to know his love for you is unlimited. And when you know how unlimited his love is, you will not go back to what you used to do because you will have experienced the loyal love of God, the hesed love of God, and you will grow. Oh, his grace grows you. And so I offer you this moment now as you sit, as Amanda sings, feel free to give a voice of thanksgiving and give God your best as we praise. Christ was betrayed. The Lord gave us a picture of his grace. The Lord allowed himself to be broken on our behalf and symbolically he took bread and he broke it and in breaking it he showed that the breaking of his body would happen. And he took wine and he showed that the wine would look like his blood being poured out on behalf of those that were there. And today, we take communion as a symbol of your love to us. God, make this time another memory of how much you love us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.